Thanks for dropping by. This is Dharma Punks, New York. What have we got going on? We have an upcoming retreat, Labor Day, September 1 to 5. And that's up in Garrison. And all the information for these retreats are on our website, dharmapunksnyc.com. I am a Buddhist pastor. Everything I do from the teaching to counseling is entirely by donation. And so if you like to consider supporting my work, the um, Venmo is DharmaPunksNYC, the uh, PayPal button's on the website, and there's even a Patreon page for those of you who like the idea of uh, supporting a Buddhist pastor. And tonight, processing rejection and loss. Boy, I really come up with one fun, uplifting talk after another, don't I? Tonight, we'll talk about uh, the nature of grief. We'll go into a bit of understanding the processes of grieving and why grieving is essential to healing and then uh, practices to grieve in a way that doesn't feel overwhelming. Some Buddhist insights into grieving, all mished and moshed together into one lovely package of Dharma presentation. So sit back, why don't we settle in, relax, and here we go. Feelings are the way we disrupt the normal psychobiological states uh, being, and feelings, the role or their job is to orient us to a change in the world around us that demands some kind of adaptation. So feelings at their roots are ways of essentially both orienting us to some change, threat, opportunity, and also the ways we start the processing of those changes. So, for example, let's look at some feelings and emotions that derive from them, shall we? Uh, positive connections are uh, relax the autonomic nervous system and they induce a release of uh, dopamine, especially dopamine D2, and uh, engages us to smile, laugh, exhibit celebration, joy which are build and bond emotions, according to uh, Fredrickson and Barbara Fredrickson. And uh, these are the ways that we downregulate the nervous system and the way we forge new alliances and create tribal adhesion. Awe-inspiring stimuli also secretes dopamine, but it also secretes serotonin, and it heightens both sympathetic nervous system and parasympathetic, which is very unusual. It's generally one or the other, but in an awe-inspiring, overwhelming um, abundance of nature that inspires wonder, it evokes curiosity and awe and interest, and so it does both. It heightens us, but it also relaxes us uh, at the same time. It's very interesting. Unexpected, unpleasant events uh, induce parasympathetic 
tonic immobility, which is called shock. We literally freeze and can't move. It's a way of uh, preserving us in, um, when faced with overwhelming threats. When we feel mistreated and attacked, the amygdala, in conjunction with the PAG, organizes the sympathetic nervous system to push back, to confront, i.e. anger. When, uh, but in the case of loss and rejection, uh, various regions, which we'll talk about, activate grief, which is expressed in the body as very often fatigue, nausea, brain fog, headaches, uh, food aversion, extremely tight uh, stomach, abdominal muscles, disrupted sleep cycles, nightmares, and none of it is particularly pleasant. Grieving is how circuits of the right orbital frontal, the dorsal, uh, the, I, the uh, dorsal medial frontal lobe, the, the uh, dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, the amygdala, which um, all form key regions of both the attachment system and the emotion system. That's how we process disconnection. And there's some immediate events that happen with grief. Uh, the, the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, as well as the amygdala, stems the secretion of dopamine, which means we lose all ego investment with the world. We stop feeling rewarded. Um, this, it overstimulates oxytocin, which highlights the pain of separation and creates separation distress. And the attachment system being activated creates an overwhelming desire to reconnect with whoever we've been separated from at times. Over time, over long durations of grieving, it can be a real threat to homeostasis in the body, meaning we can start experiencing some real physiological ailments over a long period of grieving. Um, this is because not only stemming, um, part of stemming the forward projection of dopamine is also stemming, uh, also secreting adrenaline and cortisol, which together um, narrow the arteries, decrease blood flow to the heart, and adrenaline can also cause, apparently, I didn't know this until I was doing research, uh, calcium blockages of heart cells. So it's even worse than I thought. And so literally people can die of a, a broken heart. That's why when people, you know, go through grief, they literally can feel the, the, the switching off of the vagal nerve, which makes this feeling of tightness in the chest. And over time, it can be... Uh, extremely, extremely uh, unhealthy, and in fact, uh, prolonged grieving that's not processed in a normative function, which we'll talk about, can also be associated with cancer because of the uh, excessive secretion of cortisol disrupts immune function. So, um, all of this is because our species is a tribal species, an attachment species. The way we survived as human beings was to bond, 
build affiliations that, you know, safety in numbers and anything that threatens our connection with attachment figures over the course of human development, certainly our ancestral uh, development would lead to increased vulnerability. Our tribal status would be diminished and it would require extensive periods of adaptation before we could uh, confidently re-enter the social realm and participate in all the hunting and gathering and all that. It was a necessary period of removing ourselves from the uh, ongoing activities to reassess and to adjust to our changed tribal status. So there's an evolutionary function of grieving, which not only uh, we'll talk about what it does to the attachment system, but it also signals to others that we're no longer capable for a while of living up to our previous obligations and responsibilities. It signals to others that we're in a diminished state. Um, uh, disconnection is processed largely by the right hemisphere circuits, which are associated with withdrawal impulses. To left brain is primarily dopaminergic, and it encourages us to approach, to focus on objects, to you know, accumulate to uh, build new affiliations to go forward and make plans, future-oriented, right hemisphere, past-oriented, withdrawal, anxiety of our status in the world. And so grief is primarily right hemispheric in nature. It, uh, and because the right hemisphere is extremely associative, the left hemisphere is files experienced by context. So we remember things in narratives that tell little stories about specific situations, trips we take, uh, events of our life, but they're all tied together by uh, a, a specific period of time and a specific narrative. But the right hemisphere has very little, I mean, pretty much very little narrative to it, to say the least doesn't associate things according to context. It associates things according to emotions. <laughs> so in the right brain, uh, events, all the events associated with rejection are linked together neurally, synaptically. Um, events associated with anger are linked together. Events associated with vulnerability and fear linked together. And uh, events associated with other work anxieties might be linked together, which is why in dreams, when we have anxiety dreams, we can have people long dead show up in the dreams. We can have elements from different times in our life all compressed together because um, that's the way the right brain works and the right brain is, is still active during dreaming. The left hemisphere largely those um, dim. So anyway, that's uh, when um, we experience a loss, that means all of the previous 
losses from our life can be activated, memories from previous, and especially as we'll see, unresolved uh, losses are especially activated during periods of rejection, separation, disappointment, disconnection from friends. All of that can activate feelings from old losses that have never been truly processed. And so it can quickly become a very painful, overwhelming experience. So how do we grieve uh, in a way that's um, useful, a way that allows us to move on, to process loss? Um, One of the greats in the field was Bowlby, who's also the father of attachment theory, And Bowlby, before he came up with attachment theory, did a study of orphans uh, in the aftermath of World War II. There were plenty of orphans to go around, of course, due to the losses of soldiers and the carpet bombing of, of British cities. So there was a lot of kids that were orphaned by the war. And um, he noticed that there were children who could move on after the losses of their parents and rebond with new parents and forge positive attachments. And there were children who couldn't. And he developed a uh, series of insights about the stages of grief and how they worked efficiently to help us process the losses of attachment figures. And it also works for understanding how we move on from disconnection from friends, from times we might get suddenly fired from jobs, from uh, misconnections or feelings of rejection from family systems or anyone else. So I think Bowlby's theory is pretty important. In fact, Kubler-Ross's stages of grief were directly taken from Bowlby's work on grief. So uh, she modified them, but uh, Bowlby's insights are important. He noted that there's a first stage, which is after a loss, a rejection, a disconnection, a separation, there's a state of numbness, which um, creates an um, initial overwhelming, painful feelings, but then a numbness in response to it. So the everything seems unreal. This is kind of a shock state and impossible to accept. Um, people struggle to recognize and allow the feelings to be processed. They block awareness of their bodies. They depersonalize. They kind of walk around in a kind of... Um, uh, this uh, a, a dissociative state where they're not fully feeling there's the sensations of the world around them, their bodies, and everything seems a little bit off for them. Then there's a state of yearning, which is um, when people become aware that a friendship, a relationship, or something is broken off, the left hemisphere tries to compensate by trying to fill the void and it looks for 
something to immediately replace, very often based on denial. Eventually, all these processes fail, hopefully, and we get to that stage of disrepair, disorganization, where there's finally a full acceptance that life has changed and we can't restore it to the previous state. And this leads to a lack of investment in the world. This is when all the dopamine levels plummet. This is when there's no longer any yearning to replace the lost uh, individual, or it could even be an animal that we bonded with very closely. So we go from numbness to yearning to this sort of lack of acceptance to full acceptance. And this is when the attachment system is fully informed, the nucleus accumbens, the right orbital frontal, and so forth, that the attachment figure is forever lost. And it's from this state of pure pain and discomfort that people accept that there's no longer any uh, figure to reach out to uh, that they used to have. And it's from that state of, uh, of uh, recognition that recovery begins. Over time, acceptance of it means people don't yearn or look for some replacement immediately. They accept the change. They start to rebuild new goals new daily routines, they begin to slowly trust other people to regulate their emotions. And so none of this is very pleasant. I mean, you know, just hearing me just recount the four stages of grief is a bummer, but it's actually the way that um, our species over the course of evolution developed a process of letting go and moving on. It's necessary. Uh, after rejections, losses, disconnections, um, of course, this unconscious awareness of the emotional pain that is brewing can lead to a lot of defenses to avoid grieving to avoid feeling the pain of loss. And this is where things actually uh, take an uglier turn over the long duration. When people grieve, even if it's for a short time, they process the loss and they can move on and build new partnerships, new affiliations. They can go back into their lives with renewed investment. But when people avoid grieving, there's actually long-term deficits that result. Um, people, one, uh, very often avoid grieving because they also might associate it with what's called core shame. In childhood, when a child feels abandoned or neglected by a parent, it doesn't only grieve, sometimes it blames, the child blames herself believing that it's her fault that the father or mother are not attentive or disinterested, have lost interest, are emotionally unregulated, or have, have left the family system. So the child might blame herself. And so in adult life, it can feel unbearable 
to allow oneself to grieve. So what happens is they might bounce back and forth in the defenses of blaming the person who's left or just feeling this sense of core uh, shame of I'm unlovable, but not but using that story as a way to defend against the actual physiological metabolization of grief. So they stay stuck in the story of it's my fault. No, it's their fault. No, it's my fault. So this bouncing back and forth between blame and shame, anger and self-pity. Um, and the, or sometimes people will instead engage in a premature rumination analysis, trying to figure out, you know, what went wrong and try to avoid being with the feelings just as they arise and pass. Or people can delve into work, act as if nothing has happened and drink and engage in addictive process behaviors, shopping, uh, stuffing their feelings with food, um, um, trying to create uh, false attachments by sleeping with as many other people as they can to act as if they're, they haven't been rejected in a primary relationship. And all of these defensive behaviors leave grief unmetabolized. The loss is unresolved. And the right hemisphere hasn't been fully informed that the uh, disconnection has happened and failing to process loss leaves us as um, I just read a, a clinical study on it. Um, yeah, that's the kind of nerdy shit that I do. I sit around reading clinical studies on grieving. Uh, other people play video games. What went wrong? Uh, I don't know. But anyway, um, um, failure to process loss leaves a mismatch between our explicit understandings and implicit representations, which means we have no images in our mind that fully inform us that the, the separation has occurred. And in these states of unresolved grief, there's all these maladaptive behaviors that crop up in the way. People can... Uh, constantly seek painful reunions with people who've dumped them, mistreated them, abandoned them, but keep going back again and again and again because they can't accept the fact that their needs for attachment haven't been met. They haven't grieved. They still don't accept that someone is incapable of providing them with um reliable intimacy and proximity. Uh, but there's other uh, defenses. There's uh, people will live forever expecting abandonment in each new subsequent relationship if they don't process grief. They, the, as the grief is unresolved, unaccepted, they now live in this half state of continuously in the trauma of expecting the abandonment to happen again and again and again and again and again. So they transfer their feelings about the person who is lost onto new partners and fully project onto these new partners attributes and feelings from the unresolved relationship from the past. 
In other words, if, if people go through a divorce or a breakup and they don't grieve, they just push through, they drink, they go to back to work too quickly, they deny their feelings, they, uh, they do anything to defend against the grief, then what happens is they have all this unresolved anger, vulnerability, uh, confusion, um, withdrawal impulses stemming from the old relationship that have not been processed and resolved. And so in the new relationship, all of that unresolved anger, suspicion, jealousy, blah, 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 will come up and will be aimed at the new person in their life who might be entirely innocent uh, and have not uh, done anything to warrant these affects from arising. Um, any new rejections will activate a wave of profound grief and shock from the old unresolved relationships. So we see this all the time. If you, you might have had a friend who dates someone for maybe two weeks, they've been on three dates, and then the person ghosts them, doesn't return their messages. I'm sure you know what ghosting is. I don't know why I explained that. Uh, but anyway, they get ghosted. And then they act as if a profound loss has happened in their life and their friends are confused. But wait, I thought she or he just met that other person a few weeks ago. Why are they so distraught? Well, they're not feeling the grief from the new person's ghosting them. They're feeling the unresolved grief from the pre previous wound. Um, Unresolved grief leads to preoccupation, rumination, thinking about retelling the story over and over again. Uh, it leads to social media stalking because people have not accepted the loss. They are yearning to uh, find out and feel the presence of the lost figure. They check uh, for messages. They might, on the street, mistake other people for their exes, they might start avoiding neighborhoods because they're, they're terrified of encountering their ex. All of this indicates unresolved emotional grief, unmetabolized feelings of sadness, of failure to inform the attachment system that the connection is fraught. So all of these, uh, a tendency to be vulnerable, jealous, suspicious, vulnerable in new relationships, a tendency to over uh, experience loss in new uh, 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 attachments or connections, uh, uh, preoccupation and rumination about the ex, into social media stalking, avoiding reminders or neighborhoods where exes lived. All of these are symptoms of unresolved grief. And uh, it leads to also people can have a kind of, um, I should note, impatience with the process of grieving. We're used to feelings and emotional states arising and passing, but grief is notoriously something that can be activated 
over long periods of time as we encounter reminders. This simply is the way that once again, the attachment system, the right orbital frontal is just reminding itself that a previous attachment is no longer available. It doesn't mean we haven't done necessarily the work. In fact, very often people who have fully grieved still can be subject to waves of grief in the future. So that's, it's not a sign that we haven't processed grief to have waves of grief be reactivated in the future. It's just one of the unpleasant side effects of loss and separation. So in Buddhism, of course, there's a famous story, which I've told many times, so I won't delve into it too quickly, of Kiskatami, where the Buddha gave his core teaching on grieving, which is it's important to remove the personal nature of grieving, which means the sense of blaming oneself or affixing the loss in a kind of overwhelming self-pity where we distort the, we create a story of somehow we're being personally picked on or assaulted by the, the universe, or that we are especially uh, condemned. The Buddha saw this kind of personalizing of loss to be one of the most catastrophic events. And he instructed Kisugatami, who lost her son, and her son was pretty much her entire life. He was about five or six. And she was overwhelmed with uh, shock, numbing, a lack of acceptance. And so he instructed her to go around and talk with other families who had lost loved ones, which was pretty much everywhere. And in so doing, over time, one, it stripped away her denial. She fully accepted the loss of her son. But even more importantly, she stripped away this sense of core shame that somehow she had done something wrong, that she was to blame, that the universe was conspiring against her. And so she was left with just the pure feeling of grief. And the story goes after she felt the grief, she became one of the earliest and most important figures in the Buddhist landscape. She became a very famous nun, very influential in the Dharma. And it's said that there are many of her teachings surviving to this day, even though she lived some 2,500 years ago. The Buddha also teaches in the Salatha Sutta, the famous um, uh, teaching on the shooting the dart. The Buddha said that in life, we're shot with inevitable, terrible events, loss, separation, grief, sorrow, lamentation, despair, that these are unavoidable, but we make these experiences worse by framing them in a personal level where we say, I've done something wrong. This is somehow a verdict on my being a lovable human being, uh, that there's something wrong with me. And so the Buddha said, in so doing, we shoot ourselves with a second dart that we make the, the pain even more unbearable. And he said the difference between individuals who are um, healthy 
and wise is they too grieve and experience painful events, but unlike individuals who are not informed as spiritually evolved, um, individuals who do have a spiritual practice have the ability not to turn it into a personal, shameful event. They don't drape it in self-pity. We don't deny or avoid. We have a process of feeling grief. And in Buddhism, the process is the mindfulness process. We break down grief into its core constituent um, processes. And in so doing, we make it a little less unbearable. We first observe grief in terms of just how it affects the body, pure and simple. Just what is going on in the body, maybe the tightness in the the chest, the slow breathing. The second is we then become aware of the feelings of overall discomfort or the feelings of um, numbness that are pervasive. The third is we investigate how the moods affect the mind. Does the mind feel foggy, anxious? Does the mind feel uh, uh, distracted? Does it feel very, very far away from the world? Or does everything feel too intense? And then lastly, we note the stories that we're adding on top of grief. And we try to replace the stories, the, any personalizing stories, with instead just a understanding that this too will rise and this too will pass. And that our job is simply to allow the feelings to arise and pass through the body without adding any stories that simply continuously postpone grieving or re-trigger needlessly the feelings of loss. Anyway, so that's, I think, like uh, enough on the theory of grieving. So how about we do a meditation where we don't practice on any grief that's too fresh or overwhelming, but we'll just practice on some uh, attachment disruption, maybe with a friend who we're no longer able to contact as easily or uh, people we miss. And we're going to do it in a way that is very gentle. We're going to do a grieving practice where we touch into the feelings of loss, but then we, so we bear in, we find first the grief in the body, then we back out and then we, just go to something that's safe, an image of a place or a person with whom we feel safe and connected with. And then we'll bear in and notice the feelings of grief, the just overall feelings of discomfort emotionally. Then we'll back out. Then we'll go back in and we'll note how it affects the moods of the mind. And then lastly, we'll note how, what kinds of stories we're framing the experience with. So thank you for listening. I hope that that talk was in some way informative. And now we're just going to do a, a nice 
soothing but very uh, useful practice in uh, letting go. So find a really comfortable seated or prone posture. If you want to lie down on a yoga mat or on a couch or just sit in a comfortable chair, this is not any practice to try to force yourself into some kind of rigid meditation uh, position, let go of that, and just try to find the most comfortable position for your body right now. And just closing the eyes. So bring your attention in to the body and see if you could lower it down into the body. Most of the time when we're in our bodies, it can feel like we're situated behind our eyes and between our ears, that that's the entirety of our existence. And so we want to really reconnect with the sensations of the body in a way that's soothing and can disconnect us from all the stories and all the issues of the day. We want to just... connect with what's going on internally. See if you can find sensations that are not unpleasant, associated with maybe the palms of your hands. Or if there's any part of the chest or the belly or any part of your body that feels relaxed, comfortable, just bring your attention to that area and see if you can use your exhalation to slowly spread any feelings of ease through your body. Find the most comfortable sensation in your body, wherever it is, and just try to spread it, suffuse it through the body. If there's no particularly pleasant sensation, see if you can
find the breathing, the sensations of breathing in any area where it doesn't feel tight or claustrophobic. And again, try to make your exhalations as long, subtle, complete. The longer the exhalations, the more we begin to engage the parasympathetic nervous system, and that helps us just relax, settle. If you need to yawn or stretch or shift, that's fine. Don't try to hold a overly rigidly motionless body. That's not the point of this practice.
At this point, see if you can bring to mind any place or person that conjures up a feeling of safety, ease, comfort, a place you like to go to just relax and unwind, maybe a place somewhere in nature by a large body of water, or a person you associate with reliability, attentiveness, soothing, appreciation, And see if you can, while breathing slowly, hold any image in your mind of this place or person. Try to deepen the feelings of safety. If you like, you can put a hand on your heart center just to embed the feelings of ease and comfort holding this place or person. If you can't visualize a place or person, just recite the name of the person or the place. Keep the exhalations as long as you can. And we're just going to orient to this state of ease. And after we do any of the stages of the practice, we're going to return to this inner resource. At this point, try to bring to mind someone with whom you feel disconnected, separated from, someone that you feel a sense of perhaps either rejection or unresolved emotions towards who's no longer as available. 
And while you hold this person associated with this connection or separation in mind, begin to be aware of your body. And how does your body now feel when you hold this image in mind? Do you notice even the subtlest tightening of the abdominal muscles, the heart center, the muscles and the, the cranial nerves of the face, maybe a tightening around the eyes, or maybe a slight tugging in the muscles of the neck or the shoulders. Maybe the shoulders start to slightly lift or tense. And just create space for the metabolization of separation, disappointment, to be felt without any interruption. How does separation express itself in your body? And now, just ask yourself, how do I feel when I hold this person in mind? Just that overall sense of the state of being disappointed. Or rejected or not feeling prioritized. Just how does it feel? Not just in the body, but the slowing down, maybe the sense of heaviness, a loss of energy, maybe even emotions that feel vulnerable begin to be felt. Whatever you need to feel is okay.
And then how does holding this person, this individual in mind, how does it affect the mind itself? Does the mind suddenly feel very narrow, tight, or does, do we feel suddenly very disconnected, foggy, overwhelmed, or Maybe there's a quality of yearning or quality of anger or quality of just overall confusion. And then noting if there's any stories that immediately start knocking on the door to consciousness, do we, when we think of this person, do we start to go into the story of unfairness, do we take it personally, do we use this as a story to confirm some emotional belief that we're somehow unlovable or unworthy or, or perhaps a victimization story that we're always being treated unfairly. Just what are the ways in the past we've framed separation, loss, rejection? And just be willing to put aside all of those stories and just allow acceptance and an understanding that if we just take some time just to be with the feelings themselves, that the wounds eventually inevitably heal, or at least become processed, resolved.
putting aside all the stories, just leaving acceptance and self-care in its wake. And finally, bringing back the image of the secure, presently available person or place, the inner resource of safety, and returning to that. Once again, breathing slower, softening the belly, releasing any tension that might have developed in the shoulders, in the throat, restoring ourselves back to orienting to what is available to us in our life. So whenever you're ready, you can open your eyes, take your time,